Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Dr. Paul Stoltz. Paul is 35 years working as a scholar, consultant, and coach to top-performing CEOs all over the world, author of five books, and a leader in what has become such an important factor in our world today, which is the idea of grit and resilience. In a world where soft is becoming the new hard, Dr. Paul Stoltz has been the leader in this field. Paul, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. It's really great to have you here, man. And I'd love, we were having a, a little chat off Mike, and we were talking about your background. And one thing that I didn't in my research here was this idea where you, the seed was planted in your mind about this at a very, very young age. It'd be great to hear the origins of AQ and grit. Yeah, you know, for me, I was really lucky. My father was a venture capitalist, and, you know, for his business back in the day, they would receive hundreds of business plans, people's dreams mailed to them in the post, and they would stack up in the corner. They called it their stack of dreams. And they would invest in less than 1% of these people's dreams. And I, I always asked them, so how do, you, how do you decide which ones to say yes to when you have to say no to so many? And, and he would let me help sort through these as time went on and help sort of discern which ones might win and which ones might not, who would fail and who would prevail. And he would kind of touch his chest and say, there's this thing, this, this unintangible thing deep inside. And I just remember thinking, you know, starting even at the age of 10, to be honest, which is a lot more than 35 years ago, what is that? And I, 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 that became my life's work, honestly, Aiden. I, I just became, as a researcher uh, and scholar, I became an excavator. I, I just became obsessed with, given all the things we know about success, what, what undergirds all of that? What is science proving to us that we haven't discovered that really undergirds and fuels everything we care about in life? And if we can tap that, imagine if we could, we could actually measure that, let alone improve and strengthen that, the, the incredible impact that that could have on everything we care about. Yeah, and, and how, did, how did it happen, Paul? How did you develop that? So the seed was planted as a 10-year-old kid. You, it turned on the radar for you, but how did you develop it then through those teenage years but into your early 20s as well? How did it, how did it grow? You know, it grew a number of different ways. I, had a really, I was really lucky. I had a wonderful professor and advisor in my undergraduate days before I went on to get my PhD and all the other boring stuff that you have to do to to kind of fill it out and do the research. I came up to him one day and I said, you know, who wins? And he goes, oh, what? I said, you know, sports, business, life. I mean, how do we know who wins? And he did a really good thing. He pointed at me and he goes, that's going to be your first research project. Go find out. <laughs> so I went to that place I didn't normally go to called the library. And I began and I thought, honestly, I was so smug. I, I thought I would bang it out in an afternoon. And here I am, 38 years later, still hacking away at it. But <laughs> what, after becoming sort of scientifically agnostic, because I quickly realized psychology was not answering this question at all, 
And I started looking at neurology and psychoneuroimmunology and, you know, neurobiology and different things that were out there. And trying to look at their major discoveries, what I did was took the major ahas, the major revelations from these different sciences, sciences, 17 different disciplines, and looked at the unifying factor. And, and out of that, we dawned on one major thing, which is the word adversity. It, it turns out, if you think about it, it's so true. There's something so insanely potent about the human interface with adversity. And I thought, okay, and this is 38 years ago, I thought if we have a thing called an IQ, and we know that's not terribly predictive of success, what if we had a thing called an AQ, your, your adversity quotient? And what if we could actually measure that, like really measure that, and have it be valid and reliable and robust and have it see what it predicts about us. And that became the journey starting that day. And then I formed Peak Learning, my company, which is a global research and consulting firm, 30 years ago. And uh, we've been on that quest ever since. So we've had the chance to measure uh, more than 1 million individuals' AQs in 137 countries across all different spectrums of life around the world, obviously. And, and we found that this thing called your AQ is massively predictive of a lot of things we care about. And so that's been the science we do, but the work we do is going out and help people not just measure it, but improve it. Yeah, because I love what you've done with peak learning because you, you've given a framework both to nurture this and a grow an AQ, but also to discover people with this gift. And it is really a gift, isn't it? It's a gift that they've been given through adversity to to give them this this grit this inner resilience to fight through and overcome challenges but you some of the work i've i've heard and read in my research was how you uncover that for companies because it is a missing link in so many companies now and you know i had this thing when i when i read all your work was aq equals grit and grit plus aq equals success because Nearly every successful entrepreneur has had some amount of adversity or grit. And, you know, one of the things I, I thought was really interesting was so many of our famous entrepreneurs and, and inventors in our world, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, those guys all had dyslexia, for example. And that, mm -hmm. that, that's something that came up in your work. Those kind of adversities have given people a gift to overcome every type of challenge. It'd be great to hear some of the great stories, Paul, that you have. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. A few months, you know, sort of two things. One is just by sheer coincidence. Guess where I was the day that Steve Jobs died? I was standing on stage at his children's school that evening, speaking to community leaders and business leaders and parents and educators. And then the news, we're talking about this. We're talking about AQ and grit. And the news riffled across the crowd. And so I, I, when I got the news, I kind of paused and said, well, if you want to call this off, I completely understand. And then I never forget this one gentleman right in the middle of the room just stood up and he said, no, he said, can you think of anything more appropriate to be talking about on the day that Steve Jobs died than this? This is who he was. This is what he was. And the whole crowd just kind of went, yeah, 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 yeah. So it became a sort of AQ and grit-based eulogy. 
Beautiful. Steve, which was great. And, and the other part of him that touched me was a few months before he died, I was at a, a press conference. I was being interviewed on some stuff and he was there and he was sitting cross-legged on this table barefoot. I'll never forget. And he's looking very, very pale and sickly. And this journalist called out from across the room and said, Hey, Steve, you know, like they're his best friend. He said, Hey, Steve, what is your, what would you consider to be the greatest blessing in your life? And without missing a beat, he just very quietly said, without a doubt, adversity. Brilliant. And the guy goes, why? And he said, well, think about it. Because without that, we never would have tried. We would have tried to really did become who we are. I wouldn't be me and Apple wouldn't be Apple. Next question. Brilliant. Brilliant, man. Talk about uh, a beautiful um, way to validate your work, your life's work. Wow. Brilliant. Well, it's, it is the heart of human endeavor. I mean, all the great books, the great religions, the great societies, the great leaders, all the great stories are, are spawned out of the, the human interface with adversity. And so, you know, that's why we have these two pieces. You know, the first books I wrote were around adversity quotient, which I kind of view as, you know, your gateway to measure and strengthen how you respond to everything that comes at you, which is hugely predictive of, you know, income and, and, and uh, happiness and quality of life and energy and health and innovation and problem solving, a lot of other stuff based on independent studies. But then over time, you know what I noticed, Aiden, was ah, I started asking hundreds of thousands of leaders around the world, a lot of entrepreneurs too. So, okay, two questions. What percentage of your tasks, of all the stuff on your plate, do you actually complete on time and to your satisfaction? And then I asked them the second question, which was, what about your peeps? What about your people? What percentage of their tasks do they complete on time and to your satisfaction? And we've been watching over our, our research we do with the Global Resilience Institute that that number's been gradually, consistently going down over decades. And I call that syndrome completion erosion. And so if, if the number of things we actually get done and done well is eroding, there's a problem. And that's where grit comes in. Yeah. So our version of grit is, is sort of the go after it, make it happen part, but we look at grit not just in quantity, but quality as well. Yeah, and you know, you, you talked about that erosion of, of the satisfaction with work, and there's a, there's a few forces at work. When I read your work, I kind of isolated a few elements, and one of them is the, adversion, the adversity in the world. Uh, over Since you started your work, you, you mentioned that a measure you have is that it, you, we have, go from two in our lives when you started to something like 36 now or 35 of, of adversities in a, in a day. like So we, we're coming across this constantly. So this stuff is increasing in life. That's, that's one curve going upwards. And then the other curve is the amount of people who have grit. And the, your grit gauge has showed that like back in the, like people would, would happily swap 7.2, I think people you've said, for one person with grit. So for one awesome poll, they would swap seven of their other people because of the amount of work that that person can go through with high quality to your satisfaction. And it, it's that piece that you, you can see these forces happen in the world. And then it's very, very hard to find those people who have grit, who have a, a high AQ, and who have the softer skills to deliver them. You're spot on. It, it's stunning because we ask, you know, 
employers and entrepreneurs around the world, like in my entrepreneurial work I've done with MIT and Harvard and other places, and we ask them, okay, you know, how many normal people would you trade for one with that kind of grit, for example, on the average 7.2? But then we ask them, can you think of any other bigger value multiplier? Because, you know, everyone, all of us who are part of this call right now, this conversation, we all care about delivering real value in what we do and who we are. And and they can't. They, they, to them, this is the single biggest value driver, value multiplier they can imagine. And, and to me, that's just profound. Yeah. And, and But the beautiful thing about your work is you obviously identified this obviously very early as a 10-year-old, but you've been developing it for 30 years as you as you mentioned and it's 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 almost like you were you know that Wayne Gretzky quote is about you were poking to where you were skating to where the puck is going not where it was then and it's only now that companies are awakening to the value of this and you know soft skills becoming the new hard skills and people are waking up and kind of going wait a second we need that we need that in our in our companies and you have this framework of how to deliver that well, thank you. You know, one of the things that really I find so inspiring is that it's a great way to turn your advantages to your advantage because not everybody gets an Ivy League in, you know, education or top, gets to go to Trinity where you lecture and all those kinds of things. You know, a lot of people don't have the advantages that others have. But if you can show that you have real AQ, you have real grit in how you got to where you are, what employers are saying is that trumps or transcends someone who's perfectly qualified for the job. So they will literally take someone who's less formally qualified who has this element over someone who's perfectly qualified who does not. And, and Paul, one of, the, one of the things you mentioned as well is how to uncover these people. So in an interview process, what, what kind of mm. tips? Because people ask the the typical stuff like tell me about some of your failures, but that's not enough. And you, you have some great tips for some, we have a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs and, and startups listening to this show, and they're looking for these type of people you're describing. Have you any tips for them <laughs> of, of how to find these guys? Yeah, you know, the first tip is to what not to do, because the biggest mistake that the clients we work with around the world make are this, you know, they'll sit in a job interview. And, you know, the first thing we got to realize is an interview it's like a first date, right? I mean, you're never going to look better, smell better, talk better than you do in that moment. And they're going to try to give you the best version of themselves. What you care about is what do you like on Monday morning after you've been here for a year? And, you know, what do you like on Friday afternoon at the end of a long week? So they're going to try and impress you. And when we ask questions like, what's your biggest failure? Tell me about an adversity you faced or a challenge you faced and how you handled it. Those are completely invalid questions to be asking. As a matter of fact, they're probably going to give you answers that completely uh, violate or contradict their actual AQ or grit score. So when we measure AQ with the AQ profile, which is the tool that's validated to do this uh, around the world, it's an online assessment. It turns out a lot of people who do the bragging in interviews about how resilient and gritty they are don't score that way at all. Wow. So in other words, it, it, it completely hoodwink you if you didn't have the real evidence, right? So that's number one. 
And then, you know, number two is in terms of how to get at this, what we often do is we, we put people through situations like when I interview people at our global firm, we create um, adversities. And you can do it in a lot of creative ways to see how quickly and how well they respond. You know, do they keep their humor? Do they stay level-headed? Is there a big pause? Do they have to regroup? Do they, you know, whatever it might be. And if you try to create ones that are relevant to or akin to what they might face in the workplace, like creating scenarios they have to work on or problems they have to solve, that gives you much more realistic context. And the other thing, of course, in job references, which are often very false, um, it, the question that most references aren't used to hearing is, tell me what, ha- what this person does and how they respond when they face adversity. And then they'll, they'll say something. And then if you ask them for one or two examples, it's hard for them to fake the answer to that question. Yeah. And, and often, you, you've mentioned this as well, oftentimes the people who have a high AQ and come out well out of a grit gauge, they, they can't identify sometimes though a diversity because they're so used to dealing with it that they don't, they, they don't, they see it as part of life or they see it as part of the role and they just, they just go with the flow and it, it, it's you have some great tools for uncovering that as well and you mentioned because one of the things i love is with your book with 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 grit you talk you give a code for this online uh grit gauge which is fantastic as well could we tell our listeners about that book yeah i'd be happy to you know we as a context you know we've asked about a million people around the world this question um you know we ask them two parts on a scale of 1 to 10, when you think of the kind of person you want to be, the kind of contribution you want to make in the world, even the kind of people you want to hire, the kind of impact you want to make, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is grit? Typically, it's a 10. Then the second question we ask, which is a game changer, is what matters more, the quantity or the quality of grit? And 100%, I mean 100%, globally, we'll say quality. So the grit gauge is actually the only assessment in the world that measures grit holistically, the quantity and quality of grit on all these different dimensions. So the grit gauge that's in the book, I, I wanted to give one away for free to everybody so that they could actually experience it, get the full feedback, the full report with some video coaching that comes with it once they complete it so that they could begin to measurably improve their grit right then and there in addition to all the tools we provide in the book. Yeah, and, and one of the tools, Paul, and, and um, we'll wrap up soon, but one of the tools is, I love this idea you talk about, is your why versus your try. So in, in a world where employers need to give purpose to why you come to work more than ever before, because you know people talk <clears> about millennials, job hopping and stuff like that, but, but it's my honest belief that I think they're actually looking for companies who give them a purpose and a reason to come to world to work every day, to be improving the world or making awesome products, whatever it might be. But you you have a framework around this as well for people who may not be finding that purpose in work every day. Mm. You know, I love what you just said because it's so true. I'm really so sick, honestly, of all these employers bending my ear about how lazy millennials are because they're not. They just have to have a strong enough, penetrating enough why to give it their strongest try. Without the why, there is no try. And most of the generations preceding millennials never gave themselves permission 
to even think that way. And and it's real. It's how it's it's authentic. So the tool we teach in the book that we use all over the place is called the Y track. And very simply, we ask people, okay, whatever the thing is, if you're being brutally honest on a scale one to ten, how strong is your why? Not your boss, yours. And on a scale one to ten, not what you should say, but what's really true. How strong is your why? And then finally, you know, if your why are trying out of alignment. Specifically, what do you need to do to maximize and align your why with your try? Because you'll never get there without it. Yeah, and come and come out whole. Yeah, and it's it's such a it's such a happy way to walk away from anything when you know you've given <laughs> it all your try. Because because if it if it does fail, at least you did everything in your power for it to make it happen. That that's such a nice way to, and I love that framework so much. Paul, last question, man, because. I, I, I thought about your work and I was like, okay, as a, as a father, so I've, I mentioned to you, I have two boys, seven and three. Sometimes I just feel the world has got a bit softer and that we're raising the floor and not the bar for people, both in work, but in life as well. And, and the world has got softer, let's be honest, as in it's easier than it has ever been before. And in a lot of so- lucky societies, it has become easier. But how do you instill some of these gifts to children in, you know, where you may feel, you know, you don't want to make it hard, but you want to make it a little bit, they have to work for it in some way. Have you any advice on that? Well, it's funny you say that. I was just having a conversation with an American thought leader over here about the mass wussification of America over here across the pond, exactly in line with what you were saying. It's a global phenomenon. We are softening. I like that you said you're raising the floor and not the bar. You know, the fact is, Aiden, you, you do have to make it tough, which means if there's two parents, they have to be aligned. They have to be like-minded. They have to be in cahoots. And they have, you have to let your children, here's the key word, struggle. It means you have to give them, let them have some hardship. You have to maybe let them suffer appropriately. You have to maybe let them sacrifice and experience the, the, the struggle and the trade-offs of their decisions. And obviously you want to keep them safe, but our definition of safe has softened so much. It doesn't mean their feelings won't be hurt. It doesn't mean they won't skin their knee. It doesn't mean that they won't have moments of despondency or depression or sadness or loss. Because if we don't let them have those things now, you know, the joke I always make is, if you're met, you know, if you've been through real struggles to get to where you are, your first instinct is to protect your child. But if you're really successful, massively successful at protecting your child from all adversity, you end up with three words, long-term resident. Yeah, <laughs> that's so true, man. And, and yeah, and, and, and probably long-term unemployed as well, the way the world is going. But Paul, Paul right. absolutely love your work. Um, I haven't got through Thank it all because there's five awesome books. People can find you at peaklearning.com and you're on Twitter, Dr. Grizz. Is there anywhere else people can find you? You know, you nailed it at peaklearning.com, hashtag Dr. Grid on Twitter. Um, and we're out there in the airspace. And I just, you know, welcome anyone and everyone who wants to uh, create a higher AQ, more resilient, more gritty life. That's what our mission is all about. Awesome. Well, Dr. Grid, Dr. Paul Stoltz, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to connect with you. Thank you, man. Cheers. Thank, thank you. It's a privilege. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor 
to welcome Philip Matthews, high performance growth and leadership coach. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thanks, Ed. We'd love to talk about the work you've done, your own career, both as a British and Irish Lions captain, moving then into CEO and managing director, and but now coming to being a leadership and high growth performance coach. It'd be great to hear the story. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess it goes back to leaving college, England, um, with a PhD in zoology, and then just getting my first job as a, a sales rep in a pharmaceutical company, jumping into a car with a map, and off, off I go. And I think every three or four years, five years, has been a regular cycle of change and doing something you know, quite radically different. And I suppose what I've learned over that period of time is that my own view of myself in terms of my competency, what I'm good at, is not so much around... I'm a good salesperson, I'm a good HR director, a good CEO. I'm, I'm just somebody who is adaptable, curious, wants to learn, embrace new challenges, and because I find them stimulating, thought-provoking, and, and keep learning all the time. A new challenge for me has to be about learning. I finished a, a role there six months ago as a CEO, and I have turned down other CEO opportunities because I, I've been there, done that. And I want to do something that's different and making a real impact in a personal level. I, I can do that at, at a CEO in terms of some of the role, certainly. But I want, but making a real impact and learning how I can do that is uh, is the way I want to spend the last chapter of my career. If you're innovating, you want a CEO that is not going to challenge you around the uh, the most recent failure and say why did you fail. You want a leader saying, well, what did you learn? Uh, and you want the organization to be saying, you know, what do we learn today? When you look at parenting, that gift that you can give a child at such a young age to go and go, you know what, I know you've made that mistake, but what what did you learn or made that same mistake again? And there's, there's a certain innate one where it's the hot cooker effect where they touch it and they know, okay, I got burnt. But there's the other thing where you're not constantly giving out to somebody and being on their back because if you actually formulate that, you can totally change how they think about yeah. failure. Reframe it. Absolutely. And by praising kids for success and failure, by praising intelligence and you know, praising athletic ability, praising finite things like you're very smart or you did that really quickly or you know, you're really intelligent or you're very good at drawing, as opposed to, gosh, you put so much more effort so much effort into that. You tried really hard and you didn't you, you, you know, you didn't falter when it became difficult. I'm really proud of what you must have learned there. It can have a profound effect because kids, when they hear praise from a parent, which they're constantly looking for, when they hear praise from a parent for success or a good score in an exam, a finite thing, they then begin to feel that, okay, if I'm, I did well in that exam, so I better do well in all my exams or therein lies anxiety around their talent, their fixed talent, as opposed to a parent that recognizes the learning and praises the child for the learning and learning is fun. Well, that, that's a completely different perspective. And and it has profound implications for the way young kids grow and develop and learn, as opposed to in a fixed mindset, how young kids then become anxious about repeating that success again. And I think therein you can see how a mindset is nurtured and therefore how an organizational culture needs to respond and encourage learning 
in the face of failure. And that's not to say it's not challenging, but it's the language has got to be around what did we learn today? What did we learn from that? And praising the effort, uh, knowing that success will come out of that. People might wonder, you know, what's the link between innovation and leadership, but they're the exact same thing. Innovation is leadership because that piece you talked about, a trialed experiments or, or planned experiments or planned failures, we're going to fail with this. But mm. as long as we learn, then we can improve the second time around. And, and that's what innovation is. And, you know, Edison talks about, I haven't failed. I've found 10,000 ways that doesn't work. And it's that bringing that into business. But, but the problem, Philip, certainly I've seen, and I'd love to know your, get your knowledge on this, is how does how do you get that mindset beyond the IT department or beyond the digital department who who have always worked this way or have always tried mm. to work this way into the DNA of a company? Mm. You know, how do you build that in? And I know your work with CEOs, you you get that in at that stage. But how does it trickle down and back upwards throughout an organisation? As with many most things that are this important there's no one simple solution the beauty of a startup and the opportunity of a startup is you can actually hire for people that are of a learning and a growth mindset a a number of organizations have have started to do that a number of uh, researchers have identified both psychometrics and competency-based interviews that will uncover somebody of a, a growth mindset and a lot of other research is also showing that People who are hired for a growth mindset with the technical skills, as opposed to purely on past experience and technical skills, those people with a growth mindset will outperform those people with just purely the, the, the technical skills. And that, so, that, so you can do that in a startup. But as with anything, it starts from the top. I think the CEO has to fundamentally believe in this uh, and insist that all parts of um, the culture, the daily communication dynamics, the team culture, the way people are kind of managed, mentored and coached uh, is all using the language and the, the perspective of a, of, a, of a growth mindset. And that is around what did we learn? And that's not tolerating repeating the same mistake all the time, but it's really making sure that the learning has been taken on board and it's been shared. Um, making sure that even successes are learned from because an awful lot of organizations will will see success and then move past and not really debrief it. Successes and failures need to be debriefed and and information shared. But I I firmly believe that a a passionate CEO at the the very top who who really gets it and whose every interaction effuses and role models growth and learning and is comfortable to admit when they're learning as well. It goes right the way to that. That that CEO is totally transparent and is comfortable to show that they're learning and they're not always getting it it right. That's the way to do it. It's interesting you you mentioned that, Philip, and you mentioned neuroplasticity. We had Professor Susan Greenfield on the show last last week who's a celebrated brain scientist, and she was talking about this, even in science, that people are measured on on the success of their experiments, etc. So therefore, they choose easy experiments. But the problem with all that is, like you've you've talked about in your talks before, is you're not stretching yourself. And no. A, you don't learn anything that way, but B, actually you don't stretch your neural pathways in your brain no. No. enough, so you can't create new neural pathways, which are connections within your brain. So there's, there's no growth there. And no. you mentioned about hiring for the growth mindset. 
what characteristics are you looking for from those people? You're looking for people who have um, who are very open uh, about their mistakes. You know, I, I think that the value of somebody who has made mistakes uh, can't be can't be overestimated because um, we were talking a little bit before we came on air, Aiden, about you know about our own kind of lives, and and I was telling you that I value people who have really come through and had to work really hard at stuff because they can actually impart knowledge of that process to other people versus people who have a natural innate talent um, because what can they impart because they're not really sure what that talent is because it's natural they know they can do things but but they, they're not really aware of, of, of how they've had to learn that so therefore for me the people who have actually had to learn things had to change uh, they're they are the valuable people and those people that are also also had to do it, but are also very open and very comfortable admitting it. Um, I, there's a that self-effacing uh, show of humility of uh, is is hugely important and valuable in a leader to establish a culture. But it's it's so valuable in in all of your your people as well. Admitting and not being defensive about your mistakes, but admitting them and then being able to say, and that's what I learned from this. That is what this is all about, um, because if people are learning, then the org- if everybody in the organization is learning, then the, the, the organization itself can't but progress. And assume you've got a good business model, then success as well. But if everybody is learning, that's surely got to that's surely got to lift an organization. And, and you mentioned that openness as well, because obviously what comes with that openness is a lack of politics and all those kind of old world yeah. me- me- mechanics Absolutely. that existed in companies because nobody's hiding anything because nobody's afraid right. of failure. That's right. And the lengths that some people will go to it in a fixed mindset culture and an individual has huge implications for business ethics and corporate governance because, again, going back to Dweck's research, she, she has shown that people with a fixed mindset can actually do go the ultimate and inflict their achievements or misrepresent some of their achievements because of that fear of being judged and admitting to what they see as a failure. Uh, so it has huge implications. And I think it's becoming more and more now of a, in, in some respects, a survival skill for the 21st century. But it's an, I think, to be honest, I can't see fixed mindset culture companies succeeding in a in a commercial, competitive, globalized world, I think only growth mindset companies are going to be able to survive unless they're monopolistic and, and heavily protected. Yeah, and if the, and, uh, regulation and patents itself yeah. have protected them. But it, it's interesting you say about this idea of talent being almost a curse. And, and Dweck talks about this in her work where some kid you know, might get picked for the team uh, all of a sudden, his dad or his his peers start showing interest in him, and it, then then he starts thinking, "Okay, well, this is great. I I'm actually somebody now." And then they get injured or they lose that place in the in the team, and people start not showing so much interest in him. And it, it it frames their reference to go, "You're only worth something if you've achieved something." And and what's been your own experience of this? Because obviously, you set yourself amazing goals, and you you achieved by being captain of the British and Irish Lions. The really interesting thing, and, and I'd love you to share, Philip, if you would, with our audience, is is the way you actually set markers in the future and you dared to dream. I suppose my history wouldn't have been, I would, wouldn't have been particularly strong academically, so therefore 
uh, rugby um, and sport gave me an opportunity where I felt good about myself. And uh, the moment a coach, I can remember it clearly to this day, sitting in a a wet changing room and the coach, I was 13 years old. And, and to my amazement, the coach name checked me and said, you know, Phillips, the key player in the team. From that moment on, I started to see things a little bit differently. I read, I suppose, the first rugby autobiography. That was Willie John McBride's autobiography. And he was talking about, you know, this Balamina farmer um, who led the Lions in South Africa. And I thought, well, if he can do that from Balamina, then, then I can do that. And that that goal was was set for me from then um and i suppose i never from that moment i probably never really doubted that i couldn't do it and and the coach himself said and when i was leaving the school leaving high school he said um philip will play for the lions and that kind of uh, he said this in an open presentation as we were as we were as we were leaving the school and i again i was at that stage i wasn't i was nice that he said it but i kind of I, I kind of reckon I would myself, I suppose. I wasn't being arrogant, um, but I think at that stage it was two things. One, I felt I had the talent, and two, I was going to work. I was going to do whatever it took. Yeah, I was going to do whatever it took, and probably more. It's interesting, Philip, because it's something that people, you know, I write and I do the show, and people kind of go, where do you get the time? But mm. I kind of go, well, it's cool. about sacrificing or replacement if you sit down and you watch the Kardashians or some trash TV in the evening. Yeah. That's your opportunity. That's, that's the data you're actually feeding your mind. And Absolutely. you will synthesize that. No matter what you want, if you want to or not, you will synthesize that into your life some way. And it, if you change the data that's going in like you did there, so you, you started feeding your mind with, with Willie John McBride autobiography. What, what age were you at that stage? Uh, would have been... 13 yeah that's 13. incredible like i i just find it's incredible to be planting those seeds with that data at that age and then having the reinforcement of a mentor to actually mm. go and believe in you but you planted the original seed and i think you know and i know you've discovered carl dweck's work like we all have in the last few years since the book has been released but you initially had that growth mindset whether you had a framework around it or not and mm. you, you built a career on it because you mm. talked as well about those skills that you pick up being transferable you've picked those skills up and transferred them into huge success across your whole career as we were again talking earlier, it's not talking earlier on before we came on it's not come easily i think it what i do find and i was speaking to as a another sports coach and performance coach a guy called Enda mcnulty uh, over and um we were talking about um that period and you'll identify this with this aiden that period in training when it starts to hurt and you know i think people who are driven and focused actually enjoy that hurt because they know that the guys that don't enjoy that and slow down are the guys that you're moving ahead of and it's in that zone in that zone where it hurts that you're becoming stronger and i've kind of thought about that quite a lot in terms of business as well because i've been through you know, really challenging stuff in business, but it's only in those challenging times that you really grow um, and that you increase your capacity to hold challenging stuff. And I've learned so much from that. And I do so much differently because I've made so many mistakes um, along the way. But those those mistakes are the bigger the 
mistake, the, the more the more the learning is, you never forget. You never forget those learnings when it's been at its toughest. And, and that's like the training thing. Um, when you're in that pain zone, I, I used to love that pain zone. And it used to almost, I want to hit the zone, I'm going to push harder now because I just love being in this, this particular part of it. I don't like the preamble getting up to, you know, where, where it gets hurt. But I want to get to the hurt bit quicker because that's when, that's when you get stronger. So I think that's, I think that's something I, I see a, a parallel with in, in any form of intense learning, i.e. outside your comfort zone. This is tough because you're asking yourself and your brain to do or to think in a very different way. And there and the brain is having to reconfigure and it's having to grow new pathways. And that's that's difficult. Um, and after a while, it, it becomes a hell of a lot easier. But you're never going to get there if you stay within that comfort zone. Before the show, we were talking about this as well, about the journey is the growth. Yeah. But you have to continually change it up and mix it up. And, you know, when you're doing training, you will, you will automatically plateau. You will get to that plateau and you need to then push yourself harder or change the exercises or mix it up and add in extra weight or whatever it should be. And Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about that as well. And it's, it's interesting because I thought of, your career and how you succeeded as an athlete and, and a, a leader in the rugby field, but also had set yourself those goals. But then you you transfer them to the business world. And yes, you were continuously learning, but also people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, people laughed at him when he said he was going to become uh, an actor at the end of his career. People laughed at him literally. Again, when he was when he was saying I'm going to be I'm going to be governor of L.A., people laughed at him. But it. If you take that framework of the mindset, and you've done this as well, where, and I'd say unbeknownst to yourself, obviously, that you just went and go, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the ingredients I have and I'm gonna apply them to a different trade. Yeah, I mean, I, I, ooh, the transition. It wasn't. It, I didn't find that particularly difficult. I have to say. Um, I wonder was that because it was a different era, and because just to remind our audience, in the, at the time yeah. you played, you were working as well. Yeah, I think I think always working, and then while I was playing rugby, and then always changing as well, and finding myself in situations where I've got a I've got a somebody's believed enough in me to offer me this opportunity. I I don't know a huge amount about this. Um, but I'll I'll just go and find it out. I'll learn it. I'll figure it out. And um, and I, I'm driven by a kind of a, a a curiosity around. Yes, that really sounds interesting. That sounds challenging as well for me. It's a bit like a moth to the flame. If it's something challenging, it might not be good for me, but I'll find it difficult to walk away from it. It's a it's a draw. It's a, an attraction towards challenge and learning because they both come together and and I now um confident and in a fortunate position that if I've been there done that I don't want to go back to that anymore because we were talking a bit about training and you know um once your body and your muscles become used to a particular weight session you need to change it up because they they plateau well it's the same with the brain as well when you're going through those intense periods of learning 
you know, your prefrontal cortex is actually thickening. It's adding new neural connections and it's growing. Uh, but once that skill or that new thing is learned and, and instinctive, well, then it shrinks back down again. So therefore, you need to keep, if you're going to keep developing, as, 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 I, as I firmly believe we all should in terms of our, our knowledge, our intelligence or whatever way you want to define that, we need to keep putting, we need to keep learning, we need to keep challenging our, our bodies, our hearts, our brains. Um, it's, uh, it's the healthy way to be. And then our brains become better at learning um, and less fixed. And, and I think that as well as physical fitness, having a fit brain, a learning brain, a, a brain that is fit for learning, uh, will only be fit for learning if it's regularly challenged and exercised. Yeah, and, and one of the things you talked about as well as with the skill set of a growth mindset person is positivity. Mm. But it, again, you know, if you read a lot of books about either mindfulness or positivity, that you can rewire your mind so, to see the positive and see the yes. good in everything. Absolutely. You can, and funny enough, I, I've come to mindfulness quite late. I'm not sure what it would have done had I been a mindfulness rugby player, but it helps me to be present. And it's certainly the habit of practicing it is now if I even if I practice it a couple of times a day during the day I I'm much more able to focus on the present without having a busy mind I'm, I've got a busy mind so I'd be thinking about the future all of the time what I've got to do next blah, blah, blah. and and sometimes that can distract me from the present and that's not a good thing for me so all of this is around keeping your your mind in a fit and healthy state so that you can be the best you can be and uh, the best version of yourself and, and to keep your brain fit and healthy. I thought about this and I was kind of going with my own rugby career that I never stopped to smell the roses and go, wow, I've achieved so much. I've talked to, to many leading rugby players like yourself and everybody was the same. And then I thought, but is that part of it? Is this, is this never ending or an insatiable desire to go go again and go further and what can i do next but it's it, in a way it's a shame that you don't stop to yeah. smell the roses every so often i 100 agree with you there and i think that there is a i think there is a balance to be struck there because sometimes that anxiety around keeping your place and keeping where on the team drives you to do things that other people aren't prepared to do so you can almost look at that paranoia in its extreme you can almost look at that pri pro that paranoia as a, a positive driving force, but paranoia is not a positive driving force, and there's there's a better place to be, and I think a more enlightened place to be, and that is one of self-efficacy, uh, confidence. It's not complacency. Uh, enjoying the present, enjoying the moment, as you said, and and suspending anxiety around the future for the future, which is which is where it should be. It it shouldn't be in the present and knowing the work that you're doing is going to keep you there. So I, I, I failed to reach that in my rugby career. I noticed um, our probably most recently retired famous rugby player, Paul O'Connell, uh, in his book, he talks a little bit about this as well. Um, and that kind of anxious driving force, um, he, he does attribute to actually having driven him to where he got and keeping him there to try harder, to train harder, all of that. So it's a quite a big thing for people to drop, and I haven't I haven't spoken to too many sports people yet, uh, but maybe this will emerge um, who have got that balance 
absolutely 100% right. Yeah. But I know it exists. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you mentioned Sir Paul O'Connell because a lot of people assume rugby players will be fine when they finish. And a lot of the more naturally talented ones, going back to a point you made earlier, aren't because they haven't learned the habits or, or practiced the growth mindset throughout their rugby career, which can be applied to anything if you have it. They haven't yeah. actually had to use it because they were so talented. And this is, goes back to what Carol Dweck talks about, the curse of the talented uh, person, you know, whether she's she's a great athlete or tennis player or it's a great rugby player, no matter what, it can be a curse afterwards because one thing is they might feel, what if there's a regret there that what if I did train and what, what, I, what it could have been? But B, you know, they, they then struggle in the real world because the real world demands a whole, a whole new type of, of skill sets. But if you have the growth mindset, that is the skill set. That's right. That's right. That kind of that openness to learning that's that have, you know, you're adored as a as being brilliant at, at rugby. And then when it comes to the life, a professional career outside rugby, a work career, then you have to, in some respects, go back to the go back to scratch and and admit that you don't know anything about this necessarily. Uh, you may not even know what you you do know that is relevant and not wanting to admit to that can be quite challenging. And I think that that's where having somebody with, they'll very often have mentors and coaches, they'll have coaches in rugby, but having somebody as a mentor who can help you and steer you and guide you into that transition and give you, give you elements of that growth mindset perspective so that you can actually understand that it's it is opportunity and that to be honest nobody's expecting you to know everything and if you if you want to hide that well then guess what you're never going to be able to hide it and your openness to learning and developing yourself in your rugby career that that same openness and working on things because these days there's nobody making it in professional sports who's just making it on talent alone they have to work at it yeah, it's uh, a welcome uh, change to the... Isn't it? To, oh, it's fantastic. Philip, a cu- couple of last questions for you. One thing that, that I have to say I see a lot of is with younger workers, I suppose they've had it easier, uh, certain demographics have had it easier than ever before in the world. And there's mm-hmm. there's this sense of entitlement there. And, you know, it's almost like they've been deprived the opportunity to, to learn. And as a leader... How like so? You've been coaching CEOs and leaders. If they've inherited these people and they are not going out and going looking for growth mindset people, how do they instill a new operating system? I suppose in their company to go. This is the way we're doing things. Or have you any advice on that for a lot of our startups? I, I think that that conversation needs to almost start when when an organization is running its grad program or it's doing internships or it's, or it's hiring. Uh, because I think, I think the first thing to disavow a lot of graduates is, um, is that everything you think, you know, um, everything you've had to learn to pass those exams and get your two, one or your first or whatever it might be, or your two, two, guess what? You, you're going to have to, the learning hasn't stopped yet. And you know what? You're going to actually have to learn, some very different things. It's going to be less about your ability to repeat knowledge in 
dissertations, essays, projects, whatever. It's going to be more. It's going to be more about how you work with other people, your communication skills, your your curiosity, your thirst for learning, your confidence to learn, your application, your determination. Um, so a lot of things that, quite frankly, university and primary, secondary school are not yet teaching. Um, so we just want you to know that. And we're going to help you to do that. But when you're going through this very different learning, it's going to be tough um, because in the same way that, you know, learning, picking up a new subject at school was was difficult at the start until you began to figure it out. This is this is going to be very different and it's going to be tough. Are you up for that? Because everybody in our company so far has had to do that. And the people that make it to manager and, and to supervisor and direct, they're the ones that are really good at learning this stuff. And and that's what that's I'd be saying that and reinforcing that at every every potential every possible opportunity. What I do like about this generation is that they are, you know, they're a little bit more focused, many of them, in terms of what they want to do. They're very they're more socially aware and they have probably a a desire to to do good and to help. They're they're a little bit more discerning when it comes to the type of company what they want to join. And therefore, I think it's really important that companies really flag that, that they flag their culture, that that becomes loud and discernible in, in all of their messaging um, so that they attract the, pe- the type of people they want to attract. So if, if they're a learning growth mindset company, they need, to, they need to be singing that from the rooftops. Taking that down a level to the family, so that the household. Well, it, it actually can be quite... Once once you get a handle on it, it's actually quite quite simple because it's really it's steering away from judgments uh, linking that are around success or failure or smart or intelligent finite judgments um, in your praise or your feedback or your conversations with your with your children, and it's more around. You put you really tried hard there. I'm proud of the amount of effort. I'm proud you're so determined what did you learn uh it's it's encouraging conversations around the dinner table around you know what did we learn what did you learn to tell me a little bit about what you learned in school today um not unless interest in exam results finite results because an exam result just defines a young person's performance at a moment in time it and it doesn't really say it doesn't really acknowledge that that person can learn and develop and that everybody learns and develops at maybe a different pace and that just because it's taken you a bit longer to learn this than somebody else doesn't mean you're not going to get there um and know just as much and be just as capable and able um so it's record it's changing the dynamic of that conversation away from judgment and celebrating and encouraging and nurturing learning, valuing learning over finite success. And once families get a, a language around that and get begin to feel it for themselves, it really is as simple as that. They are so alike when you when you put them side by side, those two questions, yeah. that, that a leader is very like a parent in the way and oh. he's nurturing his team, much like yeah. a mother or father would, would nurture their family. Philip, Philip, for, for those who would be interested, I'm sure there's lots 
how, how can they get in touch with you? Because you do consultancy and leadership and growth work with leaders and, and CEOs. How can people find you? Uh, best way is always email. Um, the website is in production, but um, email at the moment is um, is philmatty uh, at gmail.com. That's uh, P-H-I-L-M-A-T-T-I-E at gmail.com. And um, I'd love to hear from anybody. I've also profiles up on LinkedIn as well if anybody wants to hook up with me there. Philip Matthews, consultant in leadership and high performance growth. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Aiden.